Every day, we walk around with any number of stories in our heads. Some come from favorite books and television shows, some from our lives, some from the worlds of science, religion, and philosophy. Each serves a different purpose. Some offer explanations, others entertain, and yet others provide meaning. Some stories captivate, some inspire. Every human being finds ways to connect the ideas floating around in their heads. Sometimes we make one story a priority. Sometimes we seek a more holistic kind of harmony. This is Logosish. Today, we take some time to reflect on the role of story in life, with a special focus on the big ones that tie it all together. Hey guys, welcome back to Logos-ish. We have a little bit of a different sort of episode this week. We are once again just kind of gathered together and are just going to be wrapping a little bit about a big passion topic that I've been obsessed about for a really long time, which is religious meta narratives, which is kind of a mouthful when you think about it, but I think it's a pretty fun topic and something that has just really brought me a lot of joy and a lot of fascination and has helped me understand a lot of things about you know religion and how we do it and what we do with it. So we're going to be chatting about that. We are joined finally, it's been a couple of weeks since we've had everybody on the podcast. Um, Brian is still homeless and he'll tell us about that in a minute. But we have Brian, we have Garrett, we have Sarah. How's everybody doing today? It's great to be here with everyone. Brian, I have to say, the mustache is looking wonderful, full and waving in the, in the breeze. So I'm glad that's carrying you through this time. Yeah. So uh, just for all the listeners, I, uh, as a pastor in the United Methodist Church, there's an expectation that my congregation is going to provide me a means to live somewhere. And um, currently, uh, the house that I'm supposed to be living in is uh, waiting to be inspected by the city, and I can't move in until it is. So the city is on 50% work capacity because, you know, COVID. And uh, so we don't really know when, but I'm really hoping that it'll be ready for folks to come for Christmas. So where are you living then? At the church? Are you the phantom of the church now? Um, I'm the phantom of my grandma's guest bedroom, and I she doesn't have internet. Oh, no. So it's literally like the mid-90s all over again. I don't understand. How does she watch TV, or how does she look stuff up? I don't think she does. She does have cable, though. So she was even given a computer one year for Christmas and then turned down her like internet offer from my hero Fox communications um she's pretty awesome she's one of the most uh progressive christians that i like know now and i definitely don't think that would have been the case like i don't know six or seven years ago that's really cool i love that sarah is is making fun of you for not having internet when she's not ready to cut the cable on traditional television 
I'm an elder millennial, okay? I, need, I have certain television needs that include live sports. You don't care about baseball, so you don't understand. Uh, go Braves. They won last night. That was fantastic. Thank you, Brian. You need ads is what you need. You want commercials between every single possible ad break in a television show. How will I know what to buy? That's built-in bathroom breaks. Thank you. Brian gets it. I do. Yeah, but like with streaming television, it's customizable bathroom breaks rather than built-in bathroom breaks. You just oh, want by the way, when I move into my house, I'm totally not getting cable. I can go to a bar when there's a baseball to watch. All the sports I watch require me to go to a bar and eat chicken wings anyway, so. So you can go catch a game and catch COVID? Yeah, but it's more like a fight than a game. Oh, God. Our sports tastes are not in sync, you guys. <laughs> Um, Garrett, how are exactly. you? <laughs> uh, I'm doing good. Uh, things have been very hectic at uh, my church the past couple weeks. Um, and so we're like in a weird lull of like nothing going on. But like the the ever approaching Advent season is upon us. So we're folks are starting to think about and talk about Christmas type things. So yeah. It's been good. I've been spending a lot of time out in the yard, and I know our listeners can't uh, see this because we're not uh, providing the videos yet, but we have a really awesome, oh well, there you go. There's a really awesome garden out there for you guys. Laurel and I have been tearing up the yard and planting plants. That sounds like a lot of fun. Hey, fact checker Brian, Garrett mentioned Advent. What is Advent? Advent would be the Christian uh, season of anticipation before Christmas in which we prepare for Christ coming into the world. Cool. You're welcome. You're going to have to uh, jazz that up in post-edit, so, you know, just a little bit. Maybe I'll add, like, a giant symbol crash or something in there. All right, so why don't we talk about our actual topic for today then? So the, the, I guess what we should probably start with doing is defining what the word meta-narrative means. Go ahead, Brian. You got it. No, I want John to do that. You are all a bunch of slackers. And we are good friends, and it happened to be a busy week, and I may have skimmed the reading material, so I'm not 100% positive or confident in my abilities to engage in defining things at the moment. Sure. So I think the simple description of a meta narrative is it's a story we tell about something. It's a sort of generalized, overarching thing that we use to tie things together. You know, it's when we say a book is fiction, for example, the, the meta narrative that we're operating on is that there's a something called a story that is not necessarily true in a material or historical sense. It's there. So, you know, that it's the story that we tell about how fiction comes to exist, for example. Uh, its roots, philosophically speaking, are postmodern. You know, they go back to um, some of those French philosophers way back in the not that long ago period of time. And, uh, you know, they were sort of reflecting mainly on what they liked to call grand narratives. That's the word that Lyotard used. And these narratives were primarily, you know, the kinds of things that we tell in the background as part of our shared story. So, so big universe sweeping narratives about the meaning of everything and the structure of everything and stuff like that. So 
you know, the idea of Christianity or any religion really could be construed as a kind of grand narrative that ties everything together, that provides a certain sort of underlying meaning to everything. Uh, or we could use like a material description of the universe, like starting at the Big Bang and then working our way forward and then deriving meaning from that. Uh, or we could talk about, you know, the progression of history and how that gives meaning to everything. History became a big sort of idea starting with, you know, various philosophers before that postmodern period, you know, Hegel and people like that who painted this picture of an ever moving onward history with synthesis and antithesis and these things sort of combining together to create new things, but also moving towards a particular sort of goal or destination or idea. And then we kind of took that very large philosophical idea and boiled it down into this, you know, idea that we have a story about everything, so to speak. And then we have stories that sit above those stories uh, that help us to understand things and put ideas together and just sort of get a sense of, you know, our own understanding. So meta narratives are really just sort of the stories we tell in our own brains about why something is the way it is or what something is and how it ties to the other things that exist in our life. So it, it meta narratives also just allow us to see like why there's so many similarities in religious traditions. It's also the reason why like a lot of movie plots are exactly the same because they're addressing those kinds of topics. Yeah. I was going to say pretty much that exact same thing, John, but I'm glad that, that you did it. So a little bit more articulate than I would have said it. Yeah, so part of why we're talking about this topic and my interest in this topic relates to discussions primarily about the Bible and scripture. Uh, I did some academic work a little while back looking at the theme of hell in particular in scripture and this, this idea of hell, specifically the idea that God, the divinity of the universe, the inexpressible, ineffable deity that created and apparently cares about us also wants to condemn some of us to a life or an afterlife of perpetual, eternal, awful torment. And a lot of us who are pastors kind of look at that narrative and we go, well, that's really weird because <laughs> it doesn't really jibe with the rest of, you know, anything that people are saying. And I think rightfully it's been labeled as something that seems on the surface to be incredibly immoral and being attached to that idea of hell really then sort of calls into question the rest of the religious narrative that you're telling. Right. So how could, and this is a question that many folks have asked, like, how can a good God allow something like hell to exist? Not just allow it though, you know, like, the... and require that it exists for like execution of justice and things like that. So um, I'm not saying that that's a thing because there are plenty of theologians who don't think that that's credible at all. But I think in like the general populace, like there's a strong, pretty strong belief that they're uh, in that meta narrative that they're, might be a good place, so to speak, by the way, just finished. And uh, there's certainly a, a bad place. Yeah, and I think you're right on the money when you talk about justice, right? People have this instinct that they want 
things to be fair. You know, there's a fairness instinct. People react to it at a very sort of basic internal uh, deep mental level that goes down deep below our sort of executive cognitive skills, our, our executive reasoning. And, and so, you know, there to be an eternal timeout. Yes. Right. Like, you know, we want people to get what they deserve, but it doesn't make any sense. No, it doesn't. You know, we, you see that in all parts of life as well. So like even in secular or mundane issues, if people don't perceive something as fair or just, it creates even more. So that's often uh, projected, uh, I feel, or sought after, um, and people who come to me and talk about religious things and um, they're like, well, well, murderers and all of these terrible people, will they get to experience heaven versus me who's done none of those things? And they're seeking to, um, at least for the folks that I engage with, they're seeking for that, that ground that justice will be served in this sort of way. And they often point to the instances of like condemnation or destruction as like, okay, well, it looks like God has it or the Bible has it in this sort of way. So I could at least buy into it or, or I'm having trouble with that. Does it one way here and another, another way here? So it's always been interesting as well for me. Yeah. And what caught my attention about this conversation is, you know, there are a lot of religious ideas out there that wind up sort of creating these site, these ideas that are just, you know, long form arguments that exist in this kind of set of circular logic. They're, they're sort of trapped in this perpetual, like, well, this thing means this, and this thing means this, and this thing means this. And then, you know, we get right back to the original thing. And so you're just, you're just stuck in this circle. And it affects how people read, for example, their, you know, religious books or their religious texts, um, especially Christians. So like, you know, if you look at the Bible, there are words in the Bible that are translated as hell. And the people who translate them intend them to be this idea of eternal perpetual torment, this bad place type afterlife. And yet, none of those words and those metaphors really mean that, nor do they have to mean that. And so what winds up happening is you reinforce this idea that doesn't even necessarily need to exist in the religion to begin with. And then you start to read it in, into other places and other areas. And it, it changes the religion. It changes the way you see things and the way you approach life and the way you choose to live your life. There's a big long story about some of the early, early, early pioneers of the Christian faith who would have some of these arguments. You know, hell didn't really become popular idea and theology until later in the faith. They didn't even really have an idea about, you know, an afterlife or what we might call an eschatology, you know, the, the final destination of the universe, so to speak. John, why don't you define eschatology? You know, really all that means when we talk about religion is, is the idea that the universe sort of has a final destination or an end point, uh, a kind of perfect intended goal. You know, everybody, especially in early Christianity was really heavily influenced by Plato. And, you know, Plato had this idea of 
of the telos of the universe is what he said. So we talked a little bit about this in the Roman world episode, but just this idea that there is a, a destination or a goal that things are progressing towards or moving towards. So there's one of our grand narratives right there, that there is a destination or a goal that exists. And so, you know, people up till just before the millennium often didn't really believe very strongly in the idea of a just afterlife of, of, you know, good people go to a good place or bad people go to a bad place. Uh, Often they sort of had this idea of maybe a shadow existence outside of, you know, the lived life, or, you know, maybe if you were a good warrior or some kind of moral paragon, you got a little bit of some kind of reward of some kind, but you didn't necessarily automatically merit that or merit punishment on the other side. And then the Greeks kind of started to introduce the notion of a dark and stormy dungeon that the dead go to when they die, where they're tortured and punished. And, you know, that worked its way into some people's thinking. And then Judaism encountered Zoroastrianism, which had this very darkness versus light battling for the soul of the cosmos idea kind of sewn into that. And they absorbed some of that into their scriptures and their texts. And over time, you developed this idea of hell as we might think of it in Western culture today. And so in the early church, you had these thinkers with these different ideas, these different overarching narratives that they used to read scripture, and it changed the way they read scripture. One person in particular is a person we've mentioned several times, which is Augustine. And, you know, he was one of the sort of early titans of the Christian faith. He's one of the people that... Unfortunately, yes. (laughs) Well, he had some good things that he did too, but, you know, he was one of those people who... um, was trained in rhetoric and is very educated and became a bishop and was a very influential voice. And he would just kind of write these free-flowing arguments and very, very clever and specific arguments that would put forth ideas about belief that would counter other ideas that he saw as harmful. And, I, and my reason for saying that is uh, I have my own personal preference for Eastern Christianity, but I think we've also applied Augustine more generally than specifically. Yeah, nobody reads Augustine, but they've, they've all got really poorly described versions of his ideas in their heads, especially if they grew up in certain kinds of Christian traditions. His ideas have been taken and they've been worked and they've reworked and they've, they've kind of come down in various cultural settings uh, colloquially throughout history. And, and so now there's just stuff that's floating around that's been detached from him and his original ideas that, you know, now is often somewhat harmful in various sorts of ways. And what do you do about that? If we think about what we're going to do about that, often it involves telling a better story or a different sort of story, which is one of the things that people like Brian McLaren have been going off on recently is, is, you know, we need to tell a better story in order to reclaim some of that original goodness and grace that, that people found in early Christian narrative and people find in, in early religious narratives, those profound movements that, that build up people and capture their attention and inspire them. 
that means that obvious counterpoint to Augustine is Origen, who was, you know, another early big Christian figure who was also very educated, who was a philosopher, who uh, was a big fan of Plato also. I shouldn't say also, I'm not totally sure if Augustine was a big fan of Plato off the top of my head. So fact checker, Brian, that's your job now. But you know, he's, he's an easy counterpoint, right? He's the more optimistic, big figure from the time. Augustine eventually wrote this book uh, called City of God, and it laid out a lot of his sort of big ideas about Christianity. He, he sat down and he basically said, this is what I believe about the religion. And he used this metaphor of two cities. There's this earthly, corrupt, imperfect city, and then there's this, this heavenly existence that we move towards. And within that, he makes these big sort of sweeping claims and these arguments about, you know, what's going to happen. And in particular, you know, when he gets to the subject of hell, he's like, it absolutely exists. And we have to take all of the language about the scripture literally as possible. And, and so any kind of time we talk about fire and some kind of, you know, future cleansing of things, it's not really a cleansing. It's an eternal punishment. He was reading some Latin translations of Greek texts, and he knew how to read some Greek, but you know he was not uh, a spectacular, totally fluent in Greek individual. He was much more well-versed in the Latin and leaned towards some of those early Latin translations and so when he read about eternal fire and this and that, you know, it slotted right into his assumptions that, you know, an eternal place of conscious torment must exist out there somewhere. So uh, I took many years of Latin and I can just elaborate a little bit that the Latin word that we might translate as hell would be like Tartarus or Hades but they don't mean the same thing. Hades is just the place where the dead go. It's also where the good people go. But Tartarus is definitely where the bad people go in kind of that Greco-Roman mindset. So just for our information, that's totally one of the places where we get that concept. So uh, how does uh, Origen compare to to Augustine um, in, the, in the City of God? Because you, you mentioned Origen a little bit, but you know how is he the other side of the coin proverbially? So Origen was famously uh, what we might call a universalist in Christianity. And this is just the notion that there is some kind of perfect ending to the history of the universe in some capacity. Eventually, you know, whatever God is doing in making and shaping the universe culminates in some kind of uh, perfection. All shall be well. Everything shall be good. The Greek word for this is apokatastasis. So that's that's our Greek lesson for today is is that this, you know, universal perfection eventually gets achieved in some way shape or form. And usually in Christianity we're a part of it in some way. Origen who sees the universe not as ending in the eternal separation of this sort of corrupt reality and a more perfect reality Origen instead sees everything sort of coming together in the end and fitting in as it was supposed to be. You know, he pictured this idea of this succession of ages, which he got from Plato, and each new 
age replaces the last age. And, and eventually in the end, we work our way towards this kind of perfection. So when Origen is reading words like um, eternal one, he's reading them in the Greek and he's reading the Greek word aeonios, where he's, Augustine was leaning towards the Latin translation of that word eternus, which is where we get eternal. And, you know, aeonios has a lot of different connotations to it, but most dictionaries will define it as of the next age or of the coming age or something like that. So it's an adjective that means a description looking towards something. It could be eternity, uh, but alternatively, the idea could simply relate to, you know, we're relating this one word to this idea of this sort of future cosmic transformation of some kind. And so what we see happening is Augustine who uh, has this metaphor of these two cities and, you know, they progress in different directions, eventually towards separation. And eventually a bunch of people wind up tormented for the glory of God because, you know, God needs to torture people in fire for his glory or alternatively of origin who has a much more holistic view of the universe, who is then reading the same scriptural texts and seeing in them moral instruction, moral advice, but he's reading very differently into the metaphors, especially the fire metaphors, you know, origin pictured fire as this cleansing kind of thing. It was something that got rid of, uh, the dust and the the trash and the grossness and all of these sorts of things. He really liked Paul in the New Testament and would use some of Paul's words. And he would talk about this idea of, you know, sin kind of being like straw that was piled on top of everything. And then when you read metaphors in the Bible about fire, they were about burning away all of that badness so that you can leave the goodness, the jewel at the heart of everything uh, behind. He's telling a story about God's goodness perfecting everything, where he's, Augustine is telling a story about God's goodness removing all the bad stuff, yes, but, but the bad stuff includes whole personalities and people <laughs> and things, and leaving that bad stuff still in existence, yet separate from the good stuff and existing for the apparently, you know, perverse viewing pleasure of the people who are in the good place, you know? So it's this really sort of terrible image when we, when we think about it, you know, it's a very weird picture to us. And Augustine had his own very weird stuff, but just thinking about these two figures, right? We get this idea that maybe what we bring to the table is profoundly influencing the way we are reading and experiencing and thinking about our own religious traditions and our own religious ideas, which, you know, I think we all kind of assume as people who exist in a period of time that has already gone through the enlightenment and has spent a lot of time, especially, I don't know about you guys, but growing up, we spent a lot of time learning critical thinking skills and learning to think about our thinking and to look for biases and all of these sorts of things. And so, you know, you kind of hear maybe what we're experiencing or maybe the assumptions we make change the way we perceive things and we go, duh, 
Right. And I'll just say for me personally, like I did not grow up in a congregation that was overly focused on hell. And, but I know a lot of people that, you know, did grow up in those circumstances, but I grew up where we talked about a journey and we talked about how like ultimately like we have this Christian hope that God's going to be victorious no matter what the circumstances are. And so I just kind of maybe thought that that applied in a very broad way. So I never worried about, you know, Oh, I got to go convert my friends and things like that. Cause I was like, no, nah, God's got it. Like, I don't have to worry about that. Like, and that's not to say that I wouldn't like share in a Christian witness or live a Christian life. Like I feel like that's, but that's my personal role in that, but that's not affecting what God's doing. I think it's interesting that you brought up how these meta narratives evolve at the same time, how Augustine, uh, for all the good bits that he had, uh, was worked over over course of centuries. And Origen is not talked about often outside of uh, nerdy Christians or uh, people who like uh, ancient history. But I think it's interesting that it definitely either enforces or those ideas are used to justify certain ways of thinking, especially in the world today. You know, you always have the ideas and images of victory and one's enemies in whatever sphere of life, political or environmental or whatever else, being crushed or burned or whatever else in a wider context. And especially nowadays, we have uh, very important political figures using these meta narratives to speak on behalf of like their stances. What are your guys' thoughts on that? And is it essentially a good or bad thing? Or have we drifted so far off of the original narrative that we're creating some sort of new beast? Well, I think most of us these days understand that everything that we do as people is an evolving, changing process. You know, our culture is constantly in flux. Our language is constantly in flux. You know, that's what drives English teachers crazy, right, is what matters is that we use our language. And as we use our language, it changes because we develop different sorts of habits and we invent new words and we come up with, you know, new ways of using those words together. And at some point, the language is going to change so much that it's going to shift the rules of the language, the formal rules of the language. And as hard as we try to keep it the same, it's going to change. It's changed a phenomenal amount, even in the time that I've been alive and paying attention. Right. All of us remember when there was no verb to Google. There was no noun to Google. And yet we all use that very easily right now. Um, another example in like language is uh, the word literally <laughs> um, and how like even Webster's has changed the word literally to include things that are not literal and things like that. So uh, that's a, an example about language. That's a hill Sarah is going to die on. Us older millennials, we have, we have our things. We have our lines. <laughs> Just want to point out that Garrett is uh, less than a year older than like John and I. So he's not an older anything. Older, so much older. But he has a beard. 
So, I mean. Yeah, but I can't uh, compare to that mustache, though. That's, that's the thing. It kind of balances out. Anyway, back to meta-narratives and hell. Well, especially meta-narratives, right? Like your original question is, what do we do with the change that exists? And what do we do with that evolution of culture and narrative and all of the ideas that are floating around? And I think, you know, one of the things we wind up doing is just having to evaluate what we think a little more, especially if we understand that what we're going to bring to the table affects the items and the ideas in the places where we hold the conversation. So I really like to think about uh, scripture in particular, not necessarily as an instruction manual, like a lot of Christian traditions tend to. I tend to think about it as a place of conversation, a place where we can explore deep ideas surrounding ages old wisdom, uh, but also a place where we can tell a new story together and we can, where we can see ourselves as part of a new story, especially as part of God's story. Yeah, I mean, I was even uh, probably a couple of months ago, I had a sermon on Revelation. And for those of you who don't know, that's the last book in the New Testament. And the last part of it talks about kind of like this vision of God's new creation, you know, this this image of the end of the meta narrative. What is that like? It describes God wiping every tear from from our eyes, you know? in this way of saying like, it's going to be okay. Like God's going to be with us to the end, whatever that end is. Ultimately we're looking into that kind of basic narrative that it's going to be okay from a Christian perspective, because we know that God is involved and that God is at work and it's not really up to us. Like it's not up to us to make sure that it's okay. God's got it. Yeah, and one of the things we take in particular from especially some of the postmodern philosophers is the notion that the narrative that we tell, the overarching narrative that we tell is never quite a perfect one. Instead, you know, we wind up telling lots of little stories, which is really beautiful if you think about it because the way in which a lot of religions are shaped is they often we tend to try to shoehorn it into one big story, but typically they are built up off of lots of little stories, especially Christianity. It is built of these thousands of years of little stories that people have told and this shared cultural history and the shared cultural memory. And it has been woven together into this collection of scripture that ranges in genre and content from poetry to narrative to law codes to, you know, multiple sets of the same story to letters to just all these things, all the ways in which people have chosen to express themselves, they're in there. Yeah. Uh, so one of my favorite examples of that is actually in Genesis when we get finished with kind of the Tower of Babel story, but we're not quite ready for the story of Abraham and his descendants. What is the thing that gets us from that archetypal narrative of where does language come from to the personal story, familial story of Abraham? It's a genealogy that gets us there. And that genealogy like helps to put those two very different 
stories with very different perspectives together into that narrative. That genealogy, that's the only reason it's there is to make it a narrative versus just two different stories that aren't connected at all. And when we spoke to Leland Ferguson a couple of weeks ago, you know, one of the points he made was about the impact of the overarching stories we tell culturally. So, you know, you had the Moravians who traveled over to America and they were a relatively pietistic emphasis on holiness, keep everything in terms of property in within the community sphere. And then they shifted to something that more resembles, you know, the, the American Protestantism that we are more familiar with. You get the idea of the Protestant work ethic flowing its way into the community and they become much more capitalistic and they become much more enthusiastic about private property and those sorts of things. And, and ultimately they wind up participating in one of the most wicked institutions that's ever existed in the world and especially in American history, which was, you know, the transatlantic slave trade and the system of slavery and oppression that existed in America for most of its history. I always really appreciated how Brian said the meta narrative like peeks back in or, or ties all of these uh, smaller bits together. And I think one of the things that I appreciate the most about scripture are the instances of the ancient songs or poems that are there that are much that are some of the the oldest sources of scripture and they speak to the grander nature of things and then the stories are nestled around that and i guess for me i always like to point to those things that like anchor a context especially the people who are asking questions about uh well you know it's plain and clear to see in scripture or it's always been like this and sort of pointing back to those things that sort of broaden one's view on what's going on or maybe why a writer is writing a certain way or what they're trying to communicate as well and pointing it back to um, the idea of this growing and growth through conversation and relationship. And I always find that these larger archetypes give you that frame and content to host those conversations and connecting with one another. Along that line, I think we also have to accept the responsibility to do that. It is much easier to pit people in the meta narrative in such a way that they need to be fearful or they need to behave in particular ways in order to like end up at the result, right? Instead of like embracing the conversation and going in deeper. So I'm um, into really becoming, recognizing that the story's a lot bigger than the story we, it would be easier to tell. Yeah, definitely. And especially with like the history in this country with slavery and how the meta narrative is often used to, or was used to support and justify that practice. There's also other parts of the narrative that push very much against it. And we have to recognize our ancestry, our history, and just the way that society has now evolved from that 
in those conversations when we try and also look forward as well and changing the ways we do things. So um, especially with all of the efforts and the intentional ways that people are trying to progress and begin or continue on in the healing process, I think it's also really important that we don't throw out the baby with the bathwater, if you will, um, and say like, well, we can't say, you know, we can't use these things because they talk about slaves or they talk about this or that. And I think we need to, at least for those of us who are passionate about it, have to take all of these things into context and use them to foster those conversations and foster growth. Of course, that is a very long way to do it. And it would be so much easier uh, if we could just say, all right, well, here are your 10 points, or this is why you have to do this. Well, you know, it too also asks us to accept that our knowledge and experience are always going to be local. They're always going to be tied to us and the eyes that we see through and the time that we take to maybe try to expand our imagination a little bit. And that also means accepting the inherent limitations of our perspectives, the inherent limitations of the things that we are capable of expressing using words. And it asks us on some level to reset our mindset and not to prioritize what we think as being sort of the sole central center of the universe. In other words, it asks us to practice a little bit of humility. So context is important. And it's not all about us? Yeah. Surprise. I think you can find that little bit of wisdom in literally every human culture on the planet. In like a really meta sort of way. I get it. I got it. I got it. Sorry, uh, folks. We haven't had puns the last couple episodes, so I'm doubling down here. I really liked my shipping pun on Twitter. Thank you. It was a good one. What would the podcast be without puns? I mean, that's just part of who we are. Maybe more respectable. I don't know. So Sarah, tell us what you are thinking. You've been sitting over in the corner of the room, fairly quiet, most of this whole conversation. I have a question about apocatastasis, actually, and you just wrote a thesis on it. So is that word, is within that word the understanding of it, that it's a restoration to good or is it an initial making good or is there no implication of anything except for it just means to make good or whole or whatever it means i think typically it's rendered in english especially in christian circles as the universal restoration of all things which sort of implies that things were okay and then they went bad and now they're back to better But it doesn't require that things were awful and then were good necessarily. Does that make sense? Like, Yeah, no, I just wanted to ask because I usually hear about it in that context of the universal restoration to good. And I wonder for our lives, like what, I mean, maybe we've already touched on eschatological hope and I just maybe missed it, but what does that hope for the restoration of things to good mean for us today? Um, How does that influence the way we think or feel or receive news or information? Or like, like, how is this applicable to our lives? So for me, Bill Mallard was one of my big influences while I was at Glen Memorial in Atlanta when we were at Candler. And Bill, um, you know, he was in, 
his mid to late 80s by the time like I even got to know Bill at all and Bill just goes just hold on friends Jesus is coming like and he said that like a bunch (laughs) and that's but that's really what he meant by that is just saying like Jesus has got it and for Bill that was enough and so that's like kind of living into the that sense of hope that no matter what circumstances we're facing now God's going to be active and involved in the world and so god's going to respond to when there's when there's suffering god responds god might respond in and through the church like god might respond in and through people but god's going to respond to the suffering that that is so i I think that's what bill means by that that's a great example and story i was just thinking about um Recently, we were talking in the class that I'm in about the metaphor of the church as dying. When we think about, we look at the state of the church and we say the church is dying and what that means about our hope for the future. It's interesting because the meta narrative of Christianity, right, it includes death, but it also includes resurrection. So why is this metaphor of the church is dying something that is so scary to us? Would it be more helpful to have a different metaphor, like laying in wait, about to be resurrected? I don't know. Yeah. I mean, for me, and working with people like Michael Beck and Fresh Expressions, he has a really wonderful metaphor that he uses. Is like, um, think of the church or Christianity as a big, beautiful, and old tree, right? Large branches and, um, you know, with, you know, with old trees, you know, some branches are Uh, have fallen off and some don't look so good and some are brand new but also underneath are a whole bunch of new outpourings or new new growth in in different ways so um and that flourishes in its cycle of life and those new offshoots are of growth or uh the fact that the church as we might understand it now um, is providing shade or resources to these new versions of like what it means to be uh, connected to God, you know, support one another. So I think he approaches it in a, in a different way as an environment or a biome where all of these things are living in flux with one another. And there's, there's hope in that the, there is life and, and resilience to the faith that we hold but maybe the way that we're used to understanding it or interacting with it may not be applicable or less less effective than it was, especially to folks like me, themes of resilience and um, adapting and, and enduring uh, through the ages always garners a lot of hope for me um, and the fact that God sustains those things he loves. I think it's important for both of you guys to point out that you have shifted, I think the narrative though, in answering it the way you have. Um, Sarah, you mentioned resituating the story of death in a narrative of life, death and resurrection. And Garrett, you, you took a different pivot. You went with Michael back and you moved into kind of an ecological story and in ecology, you know, is all about cycles and change and moving, you know, energy and material and stuff from one place to another. You know, the second law of thermodynamics is, is such a dominant force in our lives and in our thinking, whether or not we acknowledge it. 
what you've both done is resituated and reframed the story. You've, you've changed the dominant narrative from one of decline and permanent removal from life, from existence into, well, it's just changing or, well, new life is going to come to this. It just may not look like what you expect, which, you know, I think sort of illustrates our point here today, which is the overarching story we tell and the assumptions we make have a lot to do with the way we experience the world and we experience religious traditions and the way in which we operate together as human beings and as a community. Have we talked about sheep and goats yet? No. Do you want to talk about sheep and goats? I did allude to it earlier, uh, the text that I was specifically referring to that Origen and Augustine found very different meanings in was the sheep and the goats story from Matthew 25. But I think that's maybe a whole different podcast on its own. I just really hoped that we could focus on the way our stories that we tell over and above the stories that we're interpreting change the way we understand one or the other. Yeah, no, that's good. Let's do a whole episode on sheep and goats and a whole episode on biblical metaphor or just metaphor. That could be one of those uh, special Patreon episodes that we'll, we'll eventually have, um, along with all of the great uh, mustache-themed merch and meta-narrative scarves. I'm a little reluctant to ask this, Garrett, but what is a meta-narrative scarf? Well, it covers everything, obviously. Yeah, yeah, and it's like, uh, you know, imagine like a full-body uh, infinity scarf. That's what I think of. You know, just made of many different strands, too. So very colorful, too. It also needs to involve a Mobius circle. Are you sure it's not just a scarf for your scarf? We're still working it out. The concept is hazy at best, but apparently it's in development and coming to a store near you in 2020-something or other. Thank you so much for participating in this little bit of a lark of a conversation with me. It's a topic that I just sit around and think about often when I'm stuck awake at night because I've over-caffeinated or something like that. But uh, as we close, what's everybody getting joy from this week? I may have a house as soon as this weekend. Housing is good. Hope for the future is also good. Yes, it is. But one of these days I'm going to come in here and have something that's really beautiful and poignant that's giving me joy. But again, this week, it's going to be television. The West Wing reunion is this week, and I am excited. Do you want to tell us why it's not a reunion, Sarah? I forgot. Aaron Sorkin very specifically said it's not a reunion. It is a, uh, what, did, what did he say instead? It's a coming back together. Not a reunion. A coming back together to uh, to do a stage performance of an episode from season three, which is where we are at our watch through, our rewatch through for some of us. I'm going to still call it a reunion though. It literally sounds like the definition of a reunion, but who am I to criticize Aaron Sorkin? Cause he's brilliant. Uh, I guess for me, um, I guess I'll go less wholesome since apparently I've been going the wholesome route. Uh, there is a, a new video game that I've been playing. Um, and it's just kind of mindless, um, you know, going around and adventuring and jumping off of cliffs into pools. And it's very beautiful in its art style. Um, and it's sort of adventure And I forget the name of it 
off of the top of my head, but it's just a beautiful piece of art. Mine's going to be pretty basic and that it's just, I'm excited to have met one of my fundamental needs, which is I am getting enough sleep. I have slept eight hours at least over the past couple of days each night. And uh, that's always really exciting to me. It means I haven't had to get up early and I haven't made the mistake of staying up late yet again. It makes me feel like I'm really getting a hold of this adulting thing and kind of finally maturing into a responsible adult, whatever that is, by age 30. It sounds like you're becoming an old man. Yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm still stuck in adolescence, me playing video games. If anybody were to do it, it would be me skipping from early adolescence straight to 80 years old and angry at kids on my lawn. My, my dog, Ace, he's always angry at the people on our lawn because uh, we, we are next door to a high school. We're very close to one, and they walk right by, and he sits in the window and barks at them. I'm like, you are a very old man. Ace and I together. Well, guys, thank you so much for coming on this week. We have a really great episode that's coming up next week and look for our social media posts about that. But thank you so much for joining us. It's been really great having the whole gang back together. Hopefully we won't lose Brian and Garrett again over the next couple of weeks. You know, it seems like everything's kind of calmed down for everybody and we're back to our normal schedules. So all's well that ends well and you know at least according to some religious traditions everything ends well so with that in mind have a wonderful week hey guys this is john thanks for listening to another great episode of logos ish this week's music was by audionautics.com if you have any questions or thoughts, or if you'd like to have your music featured on the podcast, be a guest on the podcast, or suggest a topic for us to cover, send us an email to logosishpod at gmail.com. You can also follow us on Twitter at logosishpod. Please like, subscribe, and review wherever you downloaded this podcast that helps get the word out about all the stuff we're working on, and we'd love to hear your feedback as well. Thank you.